Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I, I, yeah. I know. Ahead. This is like total fodder. <laughs> <laughs> this is, we've had almost a whole show's worth of banter. We have. I, <laughs> I feel like it's been... Uh, Oh, misspent. <laughs> oh, sexy lady. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Oh, for Gangnam Style. <laughs> it's uh, uh, happy holidays. We're into it's. It's full on. Uh, I mean, I know it's not technically December yet, but we're we're. I've, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling. Do you know how I know that it's we're here? It's because of my uh, my Starbucks. Uh, you know, the if you order one of the fancy drinks, mm-hmm. they give you a little card, a little punch card type thing with little sticker ornaments. And every time you order a fancy drink, they give you a little sticker. And they do that in 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 uh, the holiday. I want to say December, but not the holiday. And then they get give you the free fancy drink. And and I I just filled my first card of the season with fancy drinks. I don't and, think my Starbucks does that. What? What? I know. Rise up, son. I'm going to. I'm going to start complaining. I, I don't think we're close enough to to Washington. You think? <laughs> you think there's a certain sort of orbit? There's a <laughs> there certain is. orbit around Coffee <laughs> Central that it's the Mermaid Christmas that... orbit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have to. Uh, I have. You know, one thing we need to talk about. Uh, we need to talk about this Skyfall. Ah, yes. There, you know, there are a bunch of movies that I have totally failed. I've had other stuff going on this week, and and I have totally failed on on my duty as a cinema goer. And I I have not yet seen Lincoln. I have not yet seen Rise of the Guardians. I know you said that this one has a lot of heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I should totally see this. Uh, I have not seen that, but I did see uh, the Skyfall. Excellent. And you totally teased me last time. You teased me. Ah, you made I, I did. You, you made fun of me. And. Uh, and you left it kind of out there, and now I've seen it. Shall I? Shall I talk about it? Tell us. Tell no, us I, you know, only briefly. First of all, I there were, I, I sort of bring it up because I got this email from uh, our, our dear friend, uh, uh, friend of the show, uh, Kurt. Oh, uh, yeah. a friend of the show, Kurt, who, who Kurt uh, Sifford, who has been a uh, a. Um, Follower of the movies we have been following for sure, and uh, Kurt uh, wrote about uh, that he was really, really upset about Skyfall. In fact, he wrote this in his introduction or introductory email, which was, I dare say, a tome. Saw Skyfall yesterday. Warning: Do not read this if you hold it sacred and really like it, and would be pissed off to find reasons not to like it. Smiley face. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> and then he writes a lot, and. 
uh, at the, near the end, he writes, uh, actually, so far, I'm, I'm, uh, I, as, as I'm writing this, I'm convincing myself that this is, in fact, the worst Bond movie I've seen. But then again, there were all those Dalton Brosnan ones. So I, that's fair. Uh, I totally maybe, maybe dis- he should just stop going to James Bond movies. Well, I'm wondering if that's not the case uh, or just see Moonraker over and over again. Uh, you know, that would cure him of all of his ills. <laughs> I uh, I actually uh, quite liked uh, Skyfall. I felt like it was two films. And I, I felt like the first, there's the, the first half, which was kind of the cheeky acknowledgement of uh, how this is not going to be a, a Bond movie. Bond movie. And all that was hyphenated. Uh, and then there's a second half where you get to see a little bit more of the heart and uh, the spirit than we usually see of this character. And I really, really liked that. I, I loved, um, you know, I loved the risks that they were taking with Bond as a character. I loved the the uh, the way they handled Bond's sexuality in this movie. I loved the way they handled him getting just beaten up beaten up mostly i loved the way they illustrated how this was a film about a system that totally fails this man and yet he keeps coming back uh and and i thought that was a really uh interesting uh interesting thing to watch i i you know i was sad to see judy dench go but she really had to go uh it was (laughs) No, she, is that? Oh, she really had to go. I'm sorry. Gra- Grandma had to Judy. go. <laughs> she went, but I also thought she went in a really good way. I felt like that was a, a I, I felt rewarded at the end of the film and not, not sort of starved and, and, um, uh, you, you know, kind of upset. I, I just felt like it was all the pieces kind of came together in a really interesting way. And I, I really liked it. The thing I didn't like the most was the, horrible slow motion stunt with the steam shovel on the train uh i felt like are you kidding that was that was not bond that was uh uh you know uh, austin powers uh, see that seemed more bond to me i mean i was just looking at some of the old james bond movies and that's straight out of it like that cheeky silliness i mean Thunderball has him get into his car as he's escaping these guys shooting at him. The car won't start. So a little panel raises up to block the window so they can't shoot the window. And then the two exhaust pipes turn into like hoses and hose the bad guys down. Okay. All right. You're right. But those things happened in normal space time. And in Skyfall, that particularly that scene where that shovel's coming, there are guys shooting at him with guns that are presumably not made or of of sort of nerf material, and that shovel is moving at a snail's pace. I mean, there is I just there's no way that he could be in the cab and turning the thing. It's happening so slow. Like I felt like this is torture. Somebody just shoot the guy already because it's torture. <laughs> There's this is a movie. I think what they've done with the last, particularly Casino Royale and Quantum Solace, they've made everything move faster. They've made Bond faster. They've made the fights faster. They've made the chases faster. And this was an area where it was a major stunt that I thought was uh, really kind of poorly executed. But uh, overall, I quite liked this movie. I don't know if I would rank it better than uh, Casino Royale, which I, I think really still stands as my favorite to date. Uh, but it was, uh, I thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did too. I'm All glad right. you saw it. 
All right, that's all I have to say about that. Have you seen anything else worth catching up on at all? I saw Life of Pi, which was fantastic. Oh, see, there's another one, man. Ah, uh, I that I heard it really takes some time to process that. It's it was a, a film that I I watched and days, uh, you know, I've been stewing on it and deliberating it and uh, really thinking about a lot of the things that go on in it and wanting to go see it. I really, really liked it. Great, great film. Beautiful film. Beautiful story. Definitely check it out. Oh, excellent. Excellent, excellent. I need to, that's one of my wife's very favorite books. I need to, need to make sure she sees that with me. Yep, definitely. Uh, okay, so we, we got some trailers. We well, got a few little should, trailers should to we watch. Talk yep. about, let's talk about uh, just a, a little bit of site news first. Can Definitely. Uh, where where can people uh, find you? Let's do they that. Can find, they can find me at Soda Creek Film on Twitter. They can find me on Facebook and, of course, at uh, facebook.com slash movies we like and rashpixel.tv. Rashpixel.tv. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much where everything's going. We are catching up with all of the lists and the everything that we need to do uh with that so we've got so much old news and so much of the errata and sundries of old shows that we are filling in a lot of blanks uh mm -hmm. so if you're listening to some old shows and you think gosh i i wish i had a list of andy's favorite tinkerbell movies <laughs> that have been released direct to dvd that list is now published on the site you know if everybody had that in their hip pocket everywhere they went the world would be a much happier place <laughs> Yeah, amen to you, son. Amen to you. And we we also have, uh, you know, because sometimes we make up words. We now have the uh, uh, the movies we like. Glossary is now live, and you can uh, hit here and understand great terms like uh, Morgan Freeman used as a verb, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll be able to know what it means to have a Benini night, uh, or you'll know if you got the Spielberg spank. You'll be able to understand these things if you go and browse the Movies We Like glossary. So uh, make sure you head over there and check that out. And um, I'm Pete Wright on the Twitter. And mostly uh, that's probably the easiest way to, to post to us at the show directly. That's all I have to say about that. All righty. Well. Yeah. All right. Trailers. So what, what trailer do you want to talk about first? Bad Kids Go to Hell. <laughs> Why? I knew you were going to pick that one. <laughs> Oh, I don't. Oy. I honestly don't. I only want to say that because uh, it's such a, a genre mashup, the horror Breakfast Club uh, mashup. You got to go watch this trailer expressly so you don't have to go watch the movie. Uh, and you really don't have to go watch the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, just read the title, revel in the title. That's all. Really it's it's another in the in that sort of log list of obvious titles where it really kind of gives away the punchline. <laughs> These are in yeah. fact bad kids, and you know where they go. I'll give you three <laughs> guesses. First two don't count. Okay, oh. uh, let's see. What do you what uh, the the next one we we wanted? I, I, we got to talk about the uh, the uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah, you know, a buddy of mine posted that on Facebook, and there's nothing in it. It's it's just a teaser that in no way ties to the movie without you realize, you know, knowing what's going on, being on the inside. And I had I wasn't on the inside. I was definitely on the outside. And I'm like, what is this? Like a Godzilla sequel? What is going on here? Or are is San Francisco being invaded by a giant monster? Uh, well, sure enough, be. no. It's it's done as real news footage, and it's a yeah, it is a giant monster destroying San Francisco. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a teaser to Guillermo del Toro's new film, and it's not Mama. <laughs> no, because he's only presenting that. 
I don't know if you that's heard. right. <laughs> it's only a presentation. Uh, yes, alien attack threatens Earth's exi- existence. Giant robots piloted by humans are deployed to fight off the menace. Uh, this is um, it, this. It, you know, I, I have wondered. This is like Robotron, right? I mean, this is Ro- like. Oh, well, I was thinking Robotech. Robotech Robotron, Robotech. Robotech. It's all the yeah, same. Yeah, it's it's all that sort of. Uh, it's it, I, I was not a huge uh, follower of the of the Japanese kind of manga style giant robot thing. Yeah. But that's what this is, right? That's what it looks like. Yeah, it's people piloting giant robots to fight off giant monsters that rise up from the ocean. Uh, have you? Uh, and most importantly, um, one of the uh, major stars is Ron Perlman, and you know you've got a hit when you've got Ron Perlman. In the well, he's a Guillermo man. Did you? Uh, have you seen the name? The names of the actual characters in this film. Because this is this this is how you know it's a Robotron, Robotech thing. Because their <laughs> names are always this is so perfect. Uh, for example, our our protagonist is Raleigh Antrobus, right? <laughs> and, and then there's Stacker it, Pentecost. Stacker Pentecost. Hannibal and Chow, Perlman, of course, <laughs> is Hannibal Chow. <laughs> and don't forget Charlie Day, the fantastic Charlie Day. Who, uh, if you are not a fan of "It's Always Sunny in, Sil- in Philadelphia," shame on you! Uh, this is a fantastic show, and Charlie Day is, uh, is actually in this, and he plays a guy named Newt, Newt Gottlieb. Uh, so I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty excited about this movie. I'm very excited to uh, to see what they make of it. You can find the schematics of the giant robots if you are, uh, if you want to truly. Uh, nerd out you can uh, just search for the blueprint for the uh crimson typhoon i think is the one that's uh that you can find most easily and so you can check out the uh, the blueprints that are floating around the net and see what these robots are actually made of everybody should check that out yes <laughs> you know, i'm not gonna lie to you i i spent time looking at the robot blueprints you had you, you had to put down your uh your uh your klingon uh, what's the Klingon ship called? See, I just I just killed my own joke there. You did the Klingon Klingon bird of prey. I, uh, I wasn't going to uh, rescue engineering you. book, right? <laughs> I have been too busy uh, working on the community project to rebuild the Enterprise D in Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a thing. Uh, that's the important thing. <laughs> that's a thing. You think I jest? I I do not jest. This is what the forty-seven percent do. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just work in Minecraft. I'm a knowledge worker, and I wait for a hand. I wait for my Starbucks freebies. <laughs> yes, yes, I would like whip. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! That is awesome. All right. Uh, so, what's the what's what's next on your hot list? What do you think of this, Jack the uh, Jack the Giant Giant Slayer? Uh, well, the new trailer looks interesting. I mean, there's definitely more story. It looks really fanciful i i enjoy the feel of it more than the last trailer the characters are just real over the top sorts of uh thing ewan mcgregor is this you know great you know crazy you know very uh <laughs> over brave sort of knight and uh you know i don't know it looks fun i i can't imagine but i am sure i'm gonna see it <laughs> Yeah, I I kind of feel you know as you, 
I feel like of the list of of trailers that we need to talk about, this is the one that I most understand. You know what I'm saying? Like you go down this list of trailers, it's Pacific Rim. We've got some others that we're going to talk about, and I have no clue what they're about. This one I get, and so I'm going to sink my teeth into it. I know. There you go. I know. Uh, I know a beanstalk when I see one. Exactly. And, and so I'm going to hang my hat on that one. That it looks good. You know, I mean, it's like another in the line of. Uh, let's take the the old stories that were always so great in our head and remove all the magic by putting them on celluloid. <laughs> I didn't mean to sound so bitter about that. Oh uh, yes. Oh Jack, I wonder if it's. I wonder if there's any of them music. You know, what music? You know, Sondheim. Oh. So I was thinking fault, of the, the Mickey and the Beanstalk music. <laughs> a little different. A little different. I'm still yeah. stuck in my Tinkerbell land, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So we've got, we've got that. What, what, do you, what do you think about uh, uh, what else are you hot on? Of the th- you know, the only other one uh, I think is Mobius. And this is this, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. It's a wacky little French-English movie. Writer-director Eric Rochant's film uh, starring um, the artist himself, Jean Dujardin, and uh, Tim Roth, and Cecily de France, and Emily Duquesne. So um, it's, I, I don't know what to make of it other than in great detail they describe how a Mobius strip works. Yes, they do, and they caress it. There is some caressing. <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, it's I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this Tim Roth. I don't know if you've uh, you've heard of this guy, but he's a pretty talented guy. Yep, this Tim he's Roth, little Timmy. Yeah, you know, I uh, I yeah, I I really like what he does. It's uh, and and I think you know he just brings a, a really interesting character to the screen whenever he is. Uh, I think uh, restrained in any way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just watch. You want to see acting? You watch Tim Roth get held back by other people. That's act, right. There is acting, uh, and, and so I'm very excited about this. But like you said, I mean, really, it's it's mostly uh, the trailer is mostly describing uh, how to touch a Mobius strip. Well, and it is a teaser. So it is to be te- fair, you are teased. <laughs> and so, if you're into making paper, uh, you could go from here to the uh, super hexaflexagon videos on YouTube. Go look them up. And you will love things that you can do with paper strips. And then, and then we can watch some origami videos, and yes. we can wear our magic paper hats. One hundred cranes on wire. Uh, and then we have the other teaser that is uh, the other obscure teaser that we we have to talk about. This I didn't even know this was coming until the good and kindly Sarmento posted this to us on Facebook. That in fact, our uh, our uh, not yet best friend Shane Carruth. Uh, who is responsible for the fantastic uh, aneurysm-inducing primer uh, from 2004, is coming up with his next films called Upstream Color, and Slash Film has uh, three uh, teaser images from the film in which you see Amy Simetz and Shane Carruth hugging one another in a bathtub. You see uh, some actors looking at each other uh, intently, and... Uh, that's really the gist of it. So if you can get what you need to get out of those teaser images, then you are better off than we are. 
<laughs> the uh, the actual synopsis of the film. Here's what here's what we have. This is the back of the cereal box. A man and woman are drawn together, entangled in the life cycle of an ageless organism. Identity becomes an illusion as they struggle to assemble the loose fragments of wrecked lives. Break. <laughs> I think I would get as much out of that if you read it backwards. Lives wrecked of fragments loose, the assembled to struggle. No, see, it'd be better. I, the way I've read it, I've read it four or five times now, and I keep wanting to replace organism with orgasm and wrecked with wretched, and it actually means the same thing. <laughs> and then you end it all with Opa Gangnam Style. Opa Gangnam Style. All right, so that's what we've got. Go. I, I am actually very lo- much looking forward to this film. Uh, January 2013, it's going to hit Sundance, and, um, you know, it may actually hit a theater near you. It may. And you, too, will see the illusion of struggle and wrecked lives. I have a feeling it won't be hitting a theater near me. No, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's no. all right. All right, uh, so that's good. So now we're, uh, we, uh, should we talk about our, uh, about our uh, film of the evening? You know, we probably should. It's good. What do you think of this film? We're doing. We're starting a new series. Yes, you already, tonight, you already, you already dropped it on on Twitter. I note it was I, supposed I to be a big I surprise. Well, we dropped, dropped it last week. No, we didn't. You said no. You said no. It was a big secret, right? No, we talked about it. For real? Didn't we? <laughs> no, was I actually on the show last week? <sighs> Well, I thought we did. So. Well, you do. anyway, the cat is out of the bag. We are moving on to uh, uh, the lovely and talented Luc Besson, uh, French uh, mm-hmm. French director, uh, French writer, director, producer, uh, extraordinaire. And uh, we're going to start with his. Uh, I, what I think was is, uh, I think this is a great film of his, uh, Nikita, and uh, I love this film uh, for both its. Oh gosh, how do I say this delicately? I love the uh, I love the premise of the film. I love the performances in the film, and there is also a lot I really don't like in this film. <laughs> Good. Okay, then then we're on the same footing. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a film, and I think I'm going to be cursed with this uh, with this. Um, uh, you know, when we we talk about other Besson films, we're not doing many of them. We've got we've got three. This one, yeah. two others. And then we're we're putting it to rest, and I'm not sure if we will ever revisit this series. But I think there is there is stuff to get out of these films, and um, I, I I'm going to be struggling with this the the same way when we talk about these next films too. These are films to love in pieces, um, and, and I think these are the films that they they come in bites, and every sing, every sequence, every framing, every uh, little bit of structure, uh, I think has has something sort of delicious in it. Um, uh, whether in Nikita in particular, whether you're looking at at his really interesting use of camera uh, and um, you know some of the similar techniques that we see in with uh, Spielberg in uh, illustrating what's going on in the scene by what is going on out of frame, um, it, it really ends up building, I think, a, a really neat sense of intensity around this film that uh, uh, th- that I think is great to watch. I also find the character and the performance of Nikita uh, enchanting. 
I love watching watching her on screen. So you know, there are, there's a lot I think as we as we kind of pull apart uh, this movie this evening that I'm I'm excited about. I know you were hesitant to talk Besson. Yes, I I I was and uh, am, but I'm excited to. I'm excited to revisit his films and discuss them in in uh, more detail than I ever have. <laughs> <laughs> likely ever would <laughs> like exactly no you know what okay i uh, luke Besson's films never stick with me in in a way where they're memorable in in good ways <laughs> <laughs> and i know some people really love his films particularly leon the professional which seems to be like this film that everybody holds in in really high esteem um, I, and I always struggle to find what it is that people about his films. Um, he, his sensibilities are just not my sensibilities. And I think that's really what it boils down to is I just think that he sees things and he does, he sees things in an interesting way and he puts things in his films in an interesting way that I have a hard time latching onto. And I guess some people just have an easier time latching onto it. Nikita, I, I everything that you said, I agree with uh, mostly. I think, um, and I'm not quite sure how you say her last name, but the lead who plays Nikita Anne is it Paralode? I, th I, I think uh, Periode. Her Periode. We love we love the French. We love the French. I love her half the time. And the other half of the time, she drives me crazy. <laughs> Is it the first half that drives you crazy? It's the first half and the end. And the end. The the end. Well, okay. It's. I mean, specifically when she finds out that um, the cleaner is coming in, and and um, all of her kind of interaction with the cleaner. When she is over the top, she's way over the top, and I have a hard time really getting into that it just seems it just seems so over the top that it just seems crazy talk it's just like crazy lady all right i so we're talking about we're, as long as we're talking about nikita i think you're absolutely right i don't have as much of a problem with that because i think that is endemic of besson's style right i mean well, this is yeah. what he brings out of directors i don't see her any different than the other um, ancillary characters with the exception of Chucky Cario, who is uh, awesome and and stone cold the you know pretty much consistently throughout the film the uh, everybody else is on this sort of emotional you know the the portrayal of their emotional uh, um, sort of context is a roller coaster right and I don't necessarily see that hers as any any further out of out of whack than anyone else. Well, she's certainly the most extreme. And yeah, yeah. this is something that runs through all of his films that yes. I have a hard time with. So I can't I can't pin it to Anne uh, pl playing Nikita the way that she performs it because he has characters like this in every film that are always so over the top, and I just like uh, I just can't get into them. Mm -hmm. And it's it's tough for me trying to like Nikita um, when she's, you know, just so loony. And um, but OK, but I looked past that and, uh, you know, I acknowledge, OK, she's supposed to be 19 years old when we start. Um, by the time we're at the end, you know, it's like she's probably 23 or 24. So, I mean, some time has definitely passed 
she's grown up a little bit, but she's still in a system that is is a pretty, you know, crazy system. Uh, you know, this whole, right. you know, we're going to uh, put you on death row and and kill you. Oh, we're not really. We're going to make you a, a government spy, but we'll still kill you if you're not going to cooperate. It's, you know, I. This is why the French don't have a world power like bigger countries <laughs> because this is how they collect their spies. <laughs> they use death row inmates to turn into super spies. So the problem with the French is is incentive. <laughs> if we're gonna boil it down, I think that's why. Oh my goodness. Uh, we don't have anyone who wants to be a spy for us. What can we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, these people are just going to be killed anyway. You know what? I think we should uh, lower the bar. <laughs> it is our problem is recruitment. <laughs> oh, oh, my. No, you know, it's... Uh, the Okay, and the, I, I'm just going to say this, this. This actually has in no way any bearing, I don't think, on Luc Besson, but on on spy films in general, because it seems to come up, but there always seems to be a spy that they have that they can incorporate into a mission that is a perfect lookalike for somebody else. Yes. Like like the guy at the end, the ambassador or whatever. The the other guy who they conveniently have is an exact duplicate. I mean, it's played by the same actor. It's 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 so convenient that spy films, <laughs> they always have the, the perfect lookalike. Well, that's so, part, yeah, I mean, right. That's part of the, that's yeah, part that's, of the gestalt. You have to have the lookalike, and yeah. when you don't, you make a mask, mm -hmm. right? That's right. That's right. That's the that's part of the thing. So, okay, so you, uh, this is, I find this actually interesting because from a from a story perspective, I that's what I really like about this film. I really like the idea of taking this woman who was already this girl who was already you know uh from the perspective of the system trash right she was a drug addict and and a you know violent criminal and the bar so to speak for this agency was that she was remorseless uh, right yep. at the time like they there and so they thought she has all the skills they need to that she needs to become an assassin we'll just pretty her up and teach her how to put on lipstick and then we'll be able to use her to serve the state and the the and i i find that uh a really compelling um uh, and provocative story i like that i i found myself really drawn in to that story and what you're saying is you just you it wasn't believable you weren't you didn't buy in from the beginning no no i actually i totally buy into it i mean it's the story it's the nature of the story i buy into it i don't have a problem buying into the story i just find it funny like when i step back and i look at it it's it's pretty nonsensical that this is how they actually recruit people but in the context of the story and sitting down and watching it i i totally get into it and i buy into it okay all right. So all I'm saying is really just her her personality is what I have a harder time getting into. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because I, you know, I find she's a mess in the beginning, and she does a lot of that screaming. Mm -hmm. You know, the screaming right before she stabs the guy with a pen, and he's just trying to be nice and call <laughs> call her cutie. Uh, that doesn't go well, and and so she does this screaming thing, and uh, so she's a mess. Uh, I found her transformation really interesting because um, when you see her on the street, she looks really old, right? Yeah. 
she looks just disastrously aged. She does. She looks to be just a, a horrible mess. I mean, you can tell that there's a beautiful woman under there. But I mean, yeah. I thought they did a good job of, of portraying somebody who was a junkie who really had, had taken themselves to a place that um, they just weren't caring for themselves anymore and were a mess. We're just like we're aging beyond their years. Right, right. And and so she, this movie, let's see, what was this, 1990? Mm -hmm. And she was born in 1960. Right, so, so she, was she was 30 years 30. old. She was 30 when she was in this film, and she was playing a 19 to, as you say, 24-year-old or so. Uh, and, and I thought she pulled it off really well, because as soon as they started to pretty her up, uh, and you see kind of what's underneath all the age over the course of the months that she's in, in kind of training... Um, she, uh, you know, you start to see kind of the youth come out and the innocence come out and you get this. What I, what I think she really captured for me is, um, is the magic that comes with this woman learning how to be a woman, which she had never been able to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a certain sort of, um, societal skill, the, uh, presentation. And I thought that was, that was kind of, a a magical transformation. I thought she really did that very well. She did. And, you know, uh, Jean Moreau as the trainer, like the, the, the aged, uh, trainer who trains her how to be a woman, you know, has a great scene with her, a couple of great scenes with her. And, and she brings a lot of power to the film and to, um, uh, to all of her scenes that she has, uh, with Nikita and as she transforms her, it, there are some great moments there. And I, I, I really like all of that. I think it's really solid. And I think it's it's very interesting how you see her transform uh, not just to, to becoming a woman, um, something that, you know, when she's looking at herself in, in the mirror and she's putting on lipstick and she's seeing herself in a way that she's never seen herself. I mean, those are they are powerful moments. Um, and what I find really fascinating about the film, and I think they're my favorite moments in the film, is every time she feels like someone is finally, um, like she's having a moment where somebody's appreciating her for being a woman, yes. or they're they're celebrating birthday, or they're they're um, happy with her, and so they give her a vacation. Every time something is happening, all of a sudden, her her feeling of 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 strength in in that that you know, uh, feeling that she has of, of, of feeling, uh, you know, proud of, of who she is and proud of it's always taken away and crushed when she realizes that it's all just part of the game. And in every instance, it's, you know, she, it, she's only there because she's working. Yeah, I, I absolutely uh, agree with that. And I think that's, that's what you get out of the, out of, uh, the the second half of the film right is this experience where um, you see her at at what you think is her very lowest right in the opening sequences they've just destroyed the the drugstore uh, you think she's at her lowest she's just killed a cop and she goes to to jail and then they put her on uh, death row and then they presumably kill her and you think well that's she's clearly experiencing her very lowest and through the process of this training, we are led down this path of believing that they are somehow redeeming her, that they are somehow rehabilitating her into um, this this kind of um, uh, some something that is accepted in society. And the lesson of the film really is, as they're taking advantage of her, they are destroying her even further. 
right? Yeah. And you have to you you sort of have to ask yourself as you get into the third act, what you know, would she have been better off had they a killed her, b not discovered her in the drugstore and let her stay on the street? You know what I mean? Like there is mm-hmm. that that sort of question because now you know before she was just like this this like hot mess of youth energy and and rebellion and society knows what to do with rebellion, but then she becomes a a, a sort of a moral and ethical outrage as an assassin. And there is a, a very sort of a different set of rules that go along with how you deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's some interesting write-ups on her role and the role of, you know, I guess women in film and, and you know, these different theory, theories that people have of, of, of what they're doing with her. And, you know, by turning her into this, this tool, you know, it's, it, she becomes a, you know, a, a, just something for, for men to watch. It's, you know, fetishizing her, uh, all these different things. But at the same time, um, by, by giving her these tools and, and teaching her these things, she is finally, and I, I think it's interesting, there's this there's this interesting article somebody named Jennifer Proctor wrote up, but there's an interesting article she wrote up about how in the end she's, you know, her her last mission, she has to take over and dress up like the man. And so she's finally gone from wearing the slinky hot dress uh, when she's doing her assassinations until finally all of a sudden now she's wearing a man's suit and she's sneaking in and she's passing uh, the role as a man. And she she walks right past the guy's uh, assistant or somebody. Uh, and it's only the dog who actually is smart enough to to sense that it's not, you know, her, her uh, its owner. And uh, she's kind of gone past this point where um, she's this this tool for them. And she's she's kind of moved into a place where she's much more powerful because now she's, you know, represents a lot more than just this, uh, this woman, uh, slinky female killer that they've created. And uh, to a point where now it's almost like she, uh, she's able to get out and she's able to disappear from, from the film and she's able to break free. Yes. Yes. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so uh, so uh, the I, I the the then you get into to what I have sort of trouble with, and uh, I you know I like I, I, like I said I like a lot of what Luc Besson does. I like uh-huh. I I find myself sort of uh, attracted to some of his vision, but here we have this character that he's sort of created in uh, in Nikita and. She has this really, as we've discussed, this very complex transformation and this sort of, you know, relationship with society that gives us a lot of, you know, wonderful things to talk about. And then you lay sort of the Besson transparency filter on top of her. And I have a hard time not imagining it all as being sort of a vaudeville number. (laughs) Right? Like, Like he hasn't quite gotten out of the stage of of actually moving the characters in a diorama, right? Yeah. Like, it's all just sort of, they're, they're all almost kind of caricatures of themselves. Like, you can hear his voice, oh, I'm Nikita, I'm going to kill you now, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And and uh, that's that's kind of a problem I have where this movie, I think, suffers as a result of the Besson treatment, that it just seems kind of too cartoony. Am I alone? Yeah. No, no, no. 
with Passon that always bothers me in his films is is we get these really silly uh over the top that i mean that's what i was saying earlier and and just not as well as as you did but um yeah things come across in a very uh i, I hesitate saying lampoonish sort of oh, style yes, but that's the like word. you said i think cartoony that has a little uh better vibe to it comes out in uh, you know the third film that we're going to be talking about. Well, and the third film that we're going to be talking about, spoiler, Fifth Element, I think it works. Uh, to me, it works very, very well because the whole set is cartoony. Like the whole experience is vaudeville. Uh, it's it's the, the the whole thing is a, it's kind of a lampoon. It's all it all feels almost as a a, a send up. The production is a send up of sci fi kind of stories uh and and i think that works really well for me um in in this case uh i i find myself you know sort of falling in love a little bit with the characters in in this film and i feel like uh i am let down uh with uh, you know some of the the execution of the um of the comedy yeah, not just the execution of the comedy, but I also feel that some of the execution of his own script just it it's it it's not to me it doesn't make sense and it, it this is my problem with the end and and her reactions to things going on in the end uh, that she, I when, just don't When she what do you mean like when her reactions how so? Well, her reaction when when you know they're they're getting ready to um pull this final uh, uh mission for the government involving this this um, ambassador, I believe, and uh, she gets a call just as she's knocked the guy out and is ready to um, put her double in for him. She gets this call that uh, they don't have the right password, and the the surveillance team just found out, and so all of a sudden they say, "Oh, well, you know, we have to keep going. We're sending in a cleaner." And and so so what they go from six months of planning this mission to all of a sudden okay we're just going to send in a cleaner and he's going to kill everybody and that's going to be the end of it all. It, it was exactly my problem. Why didn't they just send in uh, Leon to do the job in the first place? Well, and and I don't understand <laughs> the whole the whole thing with this cleaner in the first place. It's just, it's it's kind of I don't know. It's 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 as if he's also supposed to kind of kill you know, them. And I, I don't know, the whole thing was really strange to me. And she's so upset that they're sending in this cleaner and, yeah. uh, you know, the cleaners just coming in and just doing things that it's just like, it, it seems like there has to be an easier way to finish the mission rather than just kind of kill everybody and just move on. I, I just, I don't buy into that whole thing. It just, and, and then it's, it seems as if they're blaming her for everything being all screwed up when it's these surveillance people who have kind of dropped the ball and they didn't get the password for her. No, I that I absolutely agree with that. I think that that it makes the final action scene, that final sequence as she just sort of falls apart. Uh, I I think that's a the a, a a good way way to put it that it just was not executed well. It doesn't make make a whole lot of sense, and it detracts from the strength that they have spent the last hour and thirty minutes uh, building this sense of strength in these characters that they can pull off these complex jobs and they can do what they need to do when they're and and they can deliver in these in these high pressure situations. And here we have um, y you know a clumsy failure uh and that reads to me more as a failure of script than a failure of 
Uh, not even a failure. I think they could have pulled it off. I just it seems I don't, like I, the I don't best think they could have. I mean, it's like in in the last the the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol when the mask machine all of a sudden botches and screws up all the masks. It's like them saying, "Oh, well, you know what? We don't have any masks. Okay, well, let's just go kill them all, and you know, we'll just you know take what they have and we'll we'll call it a wash and move on." Well, no, I well, it's sort of a uh, it's sort of similar in that they said, "Oh, we well, the mask thing broke. I guess we don't need the masks." Well, because there was right, that, but at that least, point. But they were thinking about how they can really accomplish the mission. Still, yeah. This these people were thinking like, okay, well, we we're not going to accomplish the mission. We're just going to kill everybody. And then she has to convince the cleaner, no, 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 we can finish the mission. We got to go do it. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just it all seemed like just kind of poor poor writing to me. Yeah. And then it follows up with this this uh, bit in bed uh, with Marco and and Josephine and. Uh, it is a really, I think, a really beautiful and sensitive moment as he sort of comes clean to, uh, about knowing, uh, and they they have this kind of bedside chat while she's stroking his face, and I found that a very sensitive moment, and I thought that was really well captured, this kind of their the way their eyes worked. I thought their performances were really great. I had the same reaction when she was in the, having the sort of one-sided phone call with Bob, uh, you know, that, that ended with her uh, inviting Bob to dinner. Uh, and and I thought that phone conversation in particular was just really artfully captured with the you know sort of the dominance or the weight of the of the shot is uh, across the the uh, bottom of the frame and you're really looking at at the top of her head and kind of her hand on the phone and and uh, watching her you feel like you're sort of uh, eavesdropping uh, on on this conversation as she is is trying to open up her life and and finding a way to share some humanity that has been you know not sure if it's been injected into her or removed from her and so she's trying to kind of reclaim some of her life and and i thought those were just two really beautiful moments that uh are otherwise kind of punctuated by uh sort of cartoony action that that i think detracts from the humanity uh that they had built yeah no, I agree. The, the and I, I completely agree with you with all that. The only thing that I have to say about the beds, the the final scene with her and Marco in the bed, I, I have no idea how he all of a sudden knows everything. Like, there's no logical reason for him to say, "I, I, I've known all about it. I know about the tailings. I know about the, the, you know, whatever." He, he's like, he, how does he know all of this? You know, these, this is a world of secret spies. But the her, her grocer boat builder uh fiance knows all of it well he's he's very intuitive <laughs> he's really intuitive <laughs> uh you've been quiet i have a sense that you're a spy that was in the director's cut <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, you know it, that's silly but yeah. but going back to more of what you were saying about the look the specific look yes i think it's interesting that there was this, you know, French film movement of the '80s uh, called Cinema du Look, coined by French critic uh, Raphael Bassan in uh, uh, in the late '80s, um, where he looked at some directors from the '80s and then into the '90s who really represented kind of this look, this this cinematic quality um, and pop culture vibe. Um, over anything more serious. And and he lumped uh, Luc Besson into this category along with a couple other directors. Uh, and they had this really slick style 
and um, focused on young alienated characters that were represented marginalized youth. And, it, you know, it, it really fit into that. And you can definitely see how beautifully shot, uh, you know, his film is. I mean, he, he made a gorgeous film. His use of colors throughout are stunning. Uh, just the way that he played with colors from the beginning. I mean, it's just it's a really gorgeous film to look at. Um, and, and I think maybe it's true, this, this whole thing about how these directors really do struggle, um, getting beyond the visual style. Um, but I mean, he definitely does struggle with the balance wait, of, wait, wait, of say that. creating those, like say, those beautiful moments you just talked about with this, the goofiness of the comic scene. Say, say that again, though, uh, how these, these directors are, you're saying that these directors who are part of the cinema du look, uh, kind of, uh, uh movement. It's not even a movement. It's the category uh, is that they uh, they are more concerned uh, or sort of trapped in this in in sort of the role of being the visionary and not the storyteller so much that they that's where they struggle. Well, that I mean that's my sense of what the, what this theory that this uh, French critic was talking about is is these directors who had a very slick style uh, with with how their films looked. And they had these young alienated characters, um, but uh, as uh, they they weren't tapped into as much the uh, the strength of the story. That's kind of my sense of what this is. It, it's these filmmakers who kind of came out of um, you know maybe the commercial world, the music video world. You know, I, I the reason I I sort of hook onto that is because that that gives me uh, that sort of gave me the language of what I was struggling with on uh, this this film that these almost to a to a person these actors were um at least in the key roles sort of Amparo Jean Hughes Anglade as Marco Checky Cario uh, Jean Moreau who I thought was terrific as Armand uh, Amand mm -hmm. uh, and obviously Jean Renault are all I think more capable performers than the material they were working with yeah uh, definitely, and, definitely, and so. Uh, uh, but to your point, you're right. the The production design and cinematography, I thought, was very, very strong. And I think Thierry Arbogast is is one of those sort of interesting, um, uh, uh, interesting cinematography and and style. And I had not made connections uh, between some of the books that, or some of the films that I I really like of his, and some that I. I really don't. I haven't seen very many of them. Uh, you know, he's a, a Luc Besson guy. I mean, Leon and Fifth Element and, and um, uh, that got significantly wide kind of an international release. I, I uh, And then we skip a lot that I haven't seen until we get up to, you know, Wing Commander, Catwoman, Babylon AD and Inseparable. And, uh you know, I actually thought the uh, the production design, cinematography of Babylon AD, the Vin Diesel action juggernaut, was quite interesting. Hmm. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie, but I thought it was a it was a beautiful piece of art. Uh, so uh, you know, I thought that it, I think it's interesting because I think you know they bring a really interesting look. Uh, you know, he uses an awful, you spend a lot of time thinking that the camera work is done just by a guy crawling around on the floor. <laughs> right. You spend a lot of time or by just, you know, children running around with cameras on their heads. <laughs> no, no, get under the table. 
so, but uh, that creates a kind of a unique look. Uh, and and uh, you know, I mentioned in the in the beginning that there's a sense of sort of what he chooses to make dominant in the scene. And there is a particularly interesting sequence uh, for during one of Aman's uh, beauty trainings uh, after. Nikita has come to terms with the fact that she is going to she's going to learn how to to make herself beautiful. Right. Where you're looking over her shoulder in a mirror and the the sort of dominant element is is Nikita's face, but it's not centered in the frame. It's kind of off-center and low as many of the you know of the framings tend to be the the sort of most interesting elements tend to be low in the frame and Aman's hand is like stroking her face. And then very, very slowly pulls away, and you don't even see where it's going. You sort of realize that it's it's kind of hidden behind the uh, out of focus, um, you know, out of field, uh, actual uh, head of Nikita, not the reflection that you're looking at in this mirror. And that that sort of uh, uh, that pull away of Aman's hand, I find absolutely mesmerizing mm-hmm. uh, as you watch Nikita try to learn to work her face as she's yeah. practicing the musculature on her face and i find that just a beautiful shot I, I, like it's a it's a poster i want to just i want to freeze it and i think you know i i look at so many you know we go through this process of trying to figure out what is the still frame for the website you know what is the still frame we're going <laughs> to use for this for this film and there are so many of them in this movie this is like a movie of stills like it yeah. it is a whole movie of just really beautifully framed and beautifully architected just stills um that I just I I am I again I I just fall in love with them and and I feel a little bit betrayed as soon as they start moving in so many cases. Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, that's really my problem with Luc Besson in in <clears throat> virtually all of his films that I've seen is I always feel they're so beautiful and I always feel um, so disappointed by what he's doing with them uh, as far as in the story. Um, but you know what I. Of them all, I, I really, I, I think this may be one that I enjoy uh, more than the others. Um, once I get past the things that bug me, like some of um, Nikita's performance uh, toward the beginning of the film, and once I get past the atrocious music <laughs> by Eric oh, Serra, uh, who is a, uh, a, a Luc Besson regular, um, once I get past those things, I can enjoy a lot more of the elements of the film because you're right. There are those moments that really stand out that you can latch on to. It's just you you have to, unfortunately, dismiss a lot of the other stuff. Eric, Sarah. Oh, man. So bad. He, he's, I feel listening to this, I'm like, was this was this popular, like the popular... French film score style in 1990, and I just don't. It doesn't feel like it ever should have been popular. I, I'm sorry, but I just I think this music is so bad. It is. It is one after another, after another, after another. I mean, this is you know Subway, which was uh, which again that that was another one of those movies that I really uh, was attracted to in terms of uh, another. We we're not talking about Subway, but it's it's almost the precursor to um, uh, to. Nikita in terms of uh, Luc Besson action film with uh, the 
beautiful Isabella Gianni and uh, Christopher Lambert, um, you know, and there's that great, you know, he's swinging around that fluorescent light bulb. It's just, it, it is a, uh, I thought that was an, another really interesting movie and it's just, God, you, it's almost unwatchable because of the music. And, and that just struck me when watching this movie. And, you know, when we were talking about doing the big blue, uh, which came uh, immediately before Nikita, uh, I was, really struck by just how important a timeless score is because none of Eric Serra's uh, uh, scores are timeless. They are absolutely dated and um, it it's really hard to listen to. Yeah, it really is. It's really it's hard. It's impossible. It's like, it, it makes it almost more comical. I think, uh, you know, I think we could uh, rescore this with other mu- music from just pick a movie and we can make it more, you know, more powerful, more dramatic. Uh, you know, I think the same thing, go back and watch Goldeneye and we'll talk about Leon and, uh, and you see the exact same thing. Fifth element, same thing. They just, they are absolutely locked to their release date. And I don't know why I can't explain how that happens with his music. I, there's, I can't even think of anybody else who, who gets so locked into their time like this. I, I can't either, and I, I still find it hard to feel that at least the score for Nikita ever was locked into any time because it just feels so bad. There's so many better scores in 1990 that uh, I just can't imagine that people were actually writing music like this. But, I know, I know. Uh, anyway, so yeah. so there there are some some elements there that are really difficult. You know, I mean, uh, I I don't actually remember uh, the score to the uh, hit film. Uh, Bulletproof Monk. I he did that too. That's a film I skipped. Arthur and I the Invisibles. On it. Uh, you, not not big on the the lady. How about Rollerball, the remake? <laughs> did you see that? Big John McTiernan fan. Uh, he had his day. He had his day. Chris Klein, you know that Chris Klein on roller skates. All right. Yep. I, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, all in all, it it. Got some kind of mixed reviews. Yeah, you know, this it was really championed by Ebert, uh, and uh, I mean, he really, really loved this film. And uh, you know, I, I to its defense, I mean, it is an interesting story. It's it's a the the whole story of transformation of a junkie to a, an assassin is a really interesting story. It's, you know, he compares it to uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Pygmalion legend, which it very much is a, a violent version of that. And it is really, really interesting. Um, it, it definitely had its uh, champions. It definitely had its detractors. It's not a film that found a big home uh, in the United States. I mean, from what I see, it uh, only made about 5 million domestically. I have no idea what it made overseas. Um, I do see the production budget was about $7 million. I don't know. I, it says dollars, right? I don't know if it, uh, you know, if it was francs or what. So I, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of a cult film, you know. Luc Besson's films really have a following. Yeah, they, they really do. That guy's got... Um, uh, he's he's a, quite the thematic... Um, director um but uh, it is uh it's a film that stands up for me because of uh, like i said because of these bite-sized elements that i think are really uh, uh both jarring and and so um 
just sort of cerebrally kind of pleasing. Uh, I, I love uh, I love looking at it. I love the little moments. I love when she returns to Bob and she she throws her back against the wall and says, "The window was walled up, Bob." I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the best uh, one of the best little moments in the film well, for me. Followed by his response, of, of course, course it was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Really, that whole thing plays out so well. Really I, I love that whole sequence. It, it, you know, and we don't. I, I don't. Necess- I don't think we give kind of enough uh, credit to uh, um, you know Checky Cario, uh, who is uh, I, I think just fantastic to watch in this movie. I think he just plays a uh, plays the great handler, um, Uncle Bob, uh, the guy. He's <laughs> another one of those guys who has been in an awful lot of movies. Uh, he really has. He's one of those faces that you recognize, but it's hard to place until you actually start yeah. reading his uh, his resume. You're like, oh yeah, he was in that. He was that guy. Yeah, he's he is that face. He is mm-hmm. that face. Uh, so you know, I I think that this was a this is a, a fascinating little ensemble piece, but almost more for the um, for what it kickstarted than than for what it is. Uh, what's your impression of Point of No Return? I really didn't like that at all. I, I much prefer this film to uh, Point of No Return. I thought it was uh, m- much worse, and the music was much much better. <laughs> I, I like you know well, there was that's, that that's not hard that great sort of Nina Simone hook. You know, I mean they just they just crushed Hans Zimmer and and uh, uh, Nick Glennie Smith. Uh, did the music for Point of No Return, which was the the American remake of of um, uh, Nikita uh, the American I, the American film the American remake. film the American yes because uh, then there followed several television series yes and now um, you know the film uh, gosh the the television series Nikita is very very different um, uh, gosh this is the one that stars uh, Maggie Q the action uh, Asian action. Well, that's Star. the new one. There was that's also the one. one that came out in the 90s that I think was closer to this rather than the direction that they've taken with Maggie Q's version. Have you seen any of the current uh, version of it? It's in the third season right now. I have not. I never had interest in it. I watched a couple episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It I like that Maggie Q. I think she's, you know, she's she good. She kicks butt. She kicks butt. Uh, but uh, no, I didn't. I haven't. Uh, I haven't stuck to that one at all. So yeah. anyway, I, I I remember this film fondly. I remember it, and and I I think it's um, you know as long as you're talking about Luc Besson, I think this is this is at the top of the list. You know, I I mean, I I know I gripe about it, but I I do enjoy the film quite a bit for what it does have in it. And like I said, I think it's so beautiful those moments where she's finally feeling like she's you know like Bob is showing her some kindness and you know, giving her a vacation and things like that. Like all of those moments um, when she finally realizes the reality of her job, I think that she plays those moments so well. I, I really enjoy every time, you know, that phone call comes in and they, they ask for Josephine uh, are, are just beautiful. And and I think there are so many great moments in that. And unfortunately, I just feel like there's some 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 moments that just don't hold up. You know, I, the the one moment that I think that I, I really I'd forgotten or repressed was the moment when she was actually killed. You know, when they actually get out the needles and inject her. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. I found that a really powerful moment to watch again. Uh, 
And I don't know why it, it's, I, I think it's too fast. Like that's yeah. that my, my critique of that sequence is that it is so fast. It goes by so fast. I, I feel like, uh, you know, they have this, this wonderful pleading, screaming, you know, please don't let it end this way. Just a little bit longer. My mom should be here. Did you tell me about it? We told her. And then you don't actually see what they're doing with her arms. You, it's another one of those where, again, the, the interesting weight of the frame is pushed so far down and her head is just like coming up like she's like she can't breathe, like she's trying to, to get air. And and uh, you see, all you see are these just sort of big sort of upper arms as they're holding her arm down. And you know what they're doing because you they've set you up with the, uh, you know, with the needle coming out of the little briefcase. Uh, but you don't see any of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just a haunting execution. I think they, they do that really well. And I think she hits just the right tone. Uh, it, you, and to, to directly contract with the, uh, contrast with that, once again, her performance in the grocery store, I think, is fantastic because she's following around the, uh, you know, that other woman just, again, sort of learning how to, mm -hmm. to be a woman. You, I just see this puppy with giant feet and big ears just kind of clumsily wandering through and, and kind of, you know, buying all the yogurt and beans on the shelf. Yeah, she's, yeah. She's so good. I think she's so good. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I think for the most part, she really does a good job. It's just yeah, some of the the moments toward the beginning and the end yeah. that uh, are a little much for me. Okay. Uh, but you know, like like we were saying, I think I, I may end up attributing a lot of that to how Luke uh, ended up choosing to direct it. I'm very excited to talk about this movie next week because um, I it's been several years since I've watched uh, Leon. Mm -hmm. And my memory of it, I remembered Nikita as being sort of comical. Uh, I don't remember Leon as being comical. Uh, and I, I, you know, I remember it being a, just a different sort of tone. And I wonder how much of that was just me, you know, really, you know, sort of fantasizing about the, uh, you know, the lifestyle when I was right, a kid right. kind of a thing. Right. So. No, I hear you. I got nothing else. Uh, it'll be a good one to talk about. I, I uh, am looking forward to watching again. I, I'd love to say that I'm going to watch both the U.S. release version and the uh, international release version just so I can refresh my memory as to what the differences between the two are. I don't know if I'm going to have the time, but yeah. uh, I'd love to think that I will. Well, should d does that mean we should uh, we should be uh, talking about which film, which version we're going to watch, each of us? Should we watch different I guess ones? So I guess so. Or you know, yeah, there's probably plenty of places online that tell you what the differences are. So yeah. I don't want I want to throw caution into the wind. <laughs> I'm gonna roll the dice. There you go. I'm gonna go pick some low hanging fruit. <laughs> All right. I got nothing you know, else I, on this I, movie. I will what say, got? yeah. Whatever problems anyone has with this film, this film did end up um influencing a number of, of filmmakers in the way that um, that Luc Besson was uh, using the style and and just kind of the the, the uh, elements that he had within the film, including the idea of Victor, uh, Jean Reno's character, the cleaner who comes in toward the end, which ended up being a uh, a um, an inspiration for Mr. Wolf, Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I mean, so thank you, Luc Besson. That's right. That's right. It's it still is important to note that uh, you know whatever you think of how he's directing his films, he definitely is still um, uh, somebody that made a mark on cinema, and other people were looking at and taking note. Yes, it's a great film. Great imagery, inspirational stuff. 
I uh, I'm very excited to uh, to watch this again and uh, continue our series on uh, on Luc Besson. Uh, what else? Anything else you have to add before we wrap this up? I don't think so. I think uh, I think I've hit everything. So I think I we're it. good. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we will. Uh, we're very much looking forward to uh, catching you next week uh, as as we really drive home the uh, French comedic stylings of Luke Bissell. Wee <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>